Welcome to PodHD, the podcast that explores the world of academic research in ways that everyone can follow. Or at least that's the aim. My name's Guy Kiddy. We start off this episode not with a bang, but with a roar. Richard Fallon is exploring the cultural reception of dinosaurs in late Victorian Britain. If he leaves you feeling weak and wobbly, fear not, as Nicola Blacklaws follows on with some strong and stable commentary on the poor law, a precursor to the modern welfare state and a social safety net that modern policymakers might do well to study. Over now to Richard and the early days of dinosaur hunting. The kind of history of paleontology is is something that comes in at the end of the 18th century, really, when extinction becomes become, becomes an acceptable sort of scientific idea when a lot of um, fossil animals that previously might have been dismissed as sort of freaks of nature become studied and, and named and sort of quantified. Um, and dinosaurs are part of that, although they're not the only thing. The mammoth and the mastodon are kind of some of the earlier animals that are uh, uh, of interest, say, around the late 18th century. The first dinosaur was named in 1824. Britain was particularly good for fossil reptiles, um, which is why dinosaurs became so famous, because Britain was, for a long time, really the only place with dinosaurs. You've got the iguanodon, quite famous, um, discovered in Sussex and named in 1825. And then um, Richard Owen, who's really the most famous British paleontologist of the century, coins the word dinosauria in 1842, which kind of connects all the strange giant um, reptiles together into a group. And, and how are these discoveries communicated? We presumably by scientific paper, uh, journals, uh, and then once they were communicated, how then did they capture the imagination of purveyors of culture? It's really tied into the general um, desire for spectacle at the time. So in the early, 80, early 19th century, sorry, there's a lot of interest in romantic poetry and paintings of volcanoes and panoramas and all these things. And extinct animals are really interesting to people because they contribute towards this idea of, you know, giant creatures, um, impressive uh, visual monsters and spectacles and things like that. So it doesn't take a great deal of popularizing it in many sense. People are quite interested in them. And one of the high points, really, and probably the most important part of the century is um, the Crystal Palace in 1854. So the Crystal Palace is this big exhibition of um, industry. And in 1854, a new section opens in Sydenham in South London. And there, there are these giant concrete models of a lot of extinct animals, including dinosaurs, built by a guy called Waterhouse Hawkins. And so millions of people see these giant models that look like big crocodiles and uh, big giant sloths and um, creatures like that. And that's really a way they start to enter the, the, the really the really mass mass interest, something that, you know, you start to get references to them in novels. Dickens references the Megalosaurus in the first page of Bleak House in 1852. They start to become, you know, something that's a bit funny because they represent defunct extinct creatures they're also eventually become tied into evolution which is in the second half of the century such a hot topic because dinosaurs do to a certain extent um have a lot of evolutionary evidence in them and, and do you trace a, a difference in portrayal of dinosaurs say from the early 19th century i'm, I'm thinking uh, that for example when when uh, tourists like byron shelley start first started mm-hmm. going to the to the alps and 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 um, wandering across the glaciers that was the time when people thought that the high Alps were inhabited by dragons and dinosaur and monstrous-like creatures. And then as as the century progressed and people started going to these exhibitions, you mentioned the one at Crystal Palace, and actually saw the proportions of these creatures and uh, a more obviously lifelike, even though it was just a skeleton, but lifelike re- re- representation of dinosaurs. Do you, do you trace then a, a change in, in portrayal of, of, of dinosaurs from something very fantastical to something much more realistic? Well, I mean... 
the the idea of fair, science proving fairy tales is is a definitely a massive one in the nineteenth century, especially in the middle of the century. It's kind of almost a cliche that's used by again by Dickens and a lot of popularizers of science. The idea that dinosaurs are dragons and a lot of popularizers, including uh, Waterhouse Hawkins, the Crystal Palace dinosaur designer, argues that um, sites of pterodactyls by kind of very ancient people were the basis of dinosaur discoveries. And so it's one of the part of this narrative of science proving the fantastical that's a way of effectively, in a certain, certain sense, selling your, your scientific book or interesting people in science and ideas of progress um, whilst kind of requisitioning in um, the kind of fairy tales and things that would have been their more pulpy entertainment. In terms of a, a real change, I think that doesn't come in till the end of a century, which is actually fairly correlated to American discoveries before any image of a dinosaur was very speculative, however ingenious, but later you can effectively really put skin back onto a whole skeleton. So so would you say towards the end of the 19th century, that's when dinosaurs start disappearing from uh, from from stories, from cultural works, because their reality can be portrayed uh, to a to a wide public, uh, and I guess also the end of the nineteenth century sees the end of romanticism and the beginning beginning of of modernism, uh, and less of a less of a taste for uh, these great subliminal aesthetic triumphs that you see in art and represented in literature throughout the nineteenth century. Romanticism as a, as a movement is sort of dying, but the new romance, which is the new novels of the 1880s, started by Stevenson and Ryder Haggard, like King Solomon's Mines, Treasure Island. The idea of this new romance, which is a single volume novel rather than the old kind of bulky three volume novels, this is really what brings dinosaurs into fiction, effectively. There's not really many dinosaurs in overtly fictional works, although a lot of popular science had books from the earlier century have these kind of very literary sections. But the idea of a dinosaur as a character in a novel, something, you know, the explorers go to Africa and they find a dinosaur, is really something that emerges in the late century, in the 1880s and 90s, and then most famously in 19... 19- Perhaps you could tell me now a bit more about your particular focus of research. You're looking at newspapers, um, I believe, a focus on, on, on newspaper coverage of dinosaurs. What, what's, the, uh, what's the period in history you're looking at? Why, why have you chosen that? What's so significant about it? Well, I should say newspapers are a part of it, but they're not the only part. I generally look at sort of printed works in general, so newspapers, but also periodicals, whether scientific or fictional, and and novels and things like that. The period I look at is the turn of the century, the decades around the turn of the 20th century, so roughly from the 1860s to the 1910s. And the reason behind that is is in two parts, really. The one is that these these are when the new dinosaurs that are effectively the first time people care about dinosaurs for dinosaurs' sake. Um, rather than just being any old extinct animal. Uh, starting sharp, so again, Brontosaurus, Triceratops, Stegosaurus. And on the other hand, this is when there's a real massive change in the publishing climate. So as I say, you've got the new romance in the 1880s, but suddenly a novel that can be shorter, snappier, more violent, more fantastical, but also with this kind of semblance of realism that's what all the reviews of Ryder Haggard say. They say it's, it's fantastic but believable, which is what is also part of the attraction of dinosaurs. And there's also the new journalism, which is effectively a much more sensational form of uh, journalism. I mean, if you've ever seen an earlier 19th century newspaper, they are very small text, very few pictures, unless they're a particular kind of um, magazine like the Illustrated London News, very fairly dry, really. But in the 1880s, there's a lot of American newspapers, for example, those by Randolph Hearst, that are full of pictures, very sensational, often a very, very dubious reality and they've got lots of kind of lurid bylines and large headings and things 
dinosaurs are a major part of this development as well because they're, they're very, effectively a fake news story, really. <laughs> fake mm-hmm. stories of, of um, imagined dinosaurs start to emerge in this period. I mean, especially in the Edwardian period when you get a lot of crazes for living dinosaurs coming up and attacking cities or emerging in Africa and New Guinea. Uh, but, but why the cutoff then in the, in, in the 1910s? What, what happens then? Or is that just a convenient point for you to, um, to, to kind of bracket your research? Well, I mean, the First World War is always convenient for Victorianists, but um, <laughs> there's a, there, is a, there is a reason for it, mainly because from 1910, in fact, specifically around 1914 is when films with dinosaurs in start to emerge. So the cinema is something that, you know, dinosaurs have been associated with um, across the whole 20th century. And really, I feel like that's a, a somewhat different world when cinema is how people are getting their dinosaurs rather than fiction, illustrated books, newspaper articles. I mean, you've got a film in 1914 called Brute Force as a Ceratosaurus, and you've got Gertie, Gertie the Dinosaurus, one of the earliest cartoons. Um, in 1925, you've got the Lost World film, um, so just about a decade or so after the book, which is a real revelation, stop motion, um, and not, not vastly similar to the book. But um, when people are receiving these images, it's not entirely different from, say, Victorians watching a Magic Lantern show with special effects. But I, I think it's something I didn't really want to wade into too deeply uh, in, in the kind of uh, confines of a thesis. Thanks again to Richard, and now on to Nicola Blackclaws, who takes us back not just to the 19th century, but many hundreds of years before that, when regional committees made moves to introduce welfare programme. I should say before she starts that there is what sounds like a trickling system throughout this clip, but I can confirm that neither of us was on the toilets during recording. Paul Laws actually got a a much longer history, I think, than a lot of people um, realise. Um, most of the kind of general texts will date it for, from kind of 1601 or the late 1500s. Um, that's really when the key to the poor law, which is settlement law, um, was developed. Um, and all settlement law means is that um, your settlement is the parish to which you legally belong. Um, and that parish is the one that uh, is responsible for you should you need should you need uh, relief because you're old or sick um, or unemployed. That parish is the one that you apply to for relief. The next kind of uh, watershed moment, I suppose, or has often been interpreted as a watershed, um, is 1834, um, which is dates is the date of the Poor Law Amendment Act, um, which creates um, in legislation anyway the poor law that most people um, who aren't historians or specialists uh, would recognise. Um, so that takes instead of working on a parish by parish level. Um, the Poor Law Amendment Act groups parishes together into poor law unions. So now um, local welfare is administered on a poor law union policy as opposed to an individual parish policy. And theoretically, at least, um, that legislation puts the emphasis onto um, the workhouse. And that Um, that suggests, um, therefore, that prior to that 1834 amendment, um, there was great disparity in, in the provision in the delivery of poor law relief so in some settlements people did very well um could be benefit cheats so to speak (laughs) and then and then in others they they weren't is that correct 
Yeah, there's there's one of the fascinating things about the poor law is that it is subject to very significant regional variation. So um, in, uh, in so the poor law in I don't know in the northeast, for instance, might be experienced and administered very differently to um, Wales or the south and west of England. Um, and you also weren't obliged. This is this is a thing. One of the key things at the eighteen thirty four Act was trying to change. Prior to eighteen thirty four, no parish was obliged to have a workhouse. And and how how are the uh, handouts funded? Uh, it was a form of taxation, flat rate, yes. or was it was it graduated in that it was sort of means tested, or you know there were marginal rates. The more you earned, or the more the greater your assets, the more you paid into the pot. Is that how it worked? Yes, there's. Um, it's called the poor rate. So prior to eighteen thirty four, that would have been set by parishes, um, and then after eighteen thirty four, the poor law unions would set their own uh, poor rate. So that yes, that's a tax, and it's based on um, a variety of things, but largely um, property kind of. So if you you the large landholders basically would be paying quite a lot. Um, into the poor rate, but you could also have um, right down to, you know, people who are really on the edge of poverty themselves, according to things like how much rent they paid would perhaps determine how much poor rate they paid. And so that's the that's the money that the poor relief comes from, from that rate. And what about the response of those those big landowners and the people who were paying most uh, in, into the into the fund? Was there general acceptance, general support um, for, for that uh, beginnings of a welfare system or resentment or uh, presumably a spread of, of reactions to um, to the law? Um, yeah, there is. There was a spread of reactions. But yes, largely the um, the larger landowners um, quite often want to be uh, would have wanted to be involved in local welfare administration, either by um, either themselves or by their own kind of agents um, to kind of have a say in welfare decisions in terms of who gets what kind of welfare, but also um, in the setting of the poor rate and decisions about um, local policy. Um, and a lot of that would be fed um, by their own interests into wanting to keep um, wanting to keep the rates uh, lower. Uh, OK, so, so 1834, why, why did some of the unions drag their feet over the introduction of, of workhouses? Were these the, um, the particularly uh, morally astute, let's say, uh, <laughs> areas where, where the, the idea of forced labour essentially was, was a, uh, not palatable? Um, it, that's actually a really interesting question. And that's, I'm, I'm just starting to do a little bit of work on that now, um, uh, focused on Wales, which is... I've in my PhD thesis, um, I focus on a couple of, of Welsh poor law unions. Um, and that's the, the kind of anti-poor law movement or anti-workhouse uh, movement is is also a highly regionalised one. So um, it's con concentrated quite a lot in kind of uh, the northeast um, and also again in Wales. There are actually two, I think, two Welsh unions that never built a workhouse. And eventually in the 1870s, the, um, the authorities just dissolved them and put their parishes in with other unions because they wouldn't behave themselves. Um, some historians reckon that it's to do with it's simply to do with economics. 
It's very expensive to build a workhouse. It's actually quite expensive to maintain people in a workhouse as opposed to um, maintaining them outside. So people prefer to do that um, rather than spend their money on the workhouse. Um, also, in terms of Wales, some people suggest that it's to do with not being, and this actually was probably true from um for the northeast as well, there are reluctance to be told what to do by the central authorities. They don't like being told that they have to change the way that they've been doing things um, for several decades. Um, but also, there's evidence, I think, particularly in Wales, that um, it's just not how it's done here. It's a, it's a, almost a kind of a cultural clash. Um, and there's, there's. Evidence that suggests that that's more the case in rural places where um, the poor law um, officials will have a lot more, um, a lot deeper personal knowledge of individual poor people, which is obviously a lot more difficult to achieve in large urban areas with, you know, enormous volumes of poor people. One of the, one of the things that really interested me was that um, you mentioned there was a lot of resistance to centralization uh mm. come, come 1834 um that that regional uh boards were running things the way that they saw fit and uh arguably there was a lot more compassion with with the needy because well people were much closer to, the, to those in those regional areas that um that needed support that needed uh poor 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 relief so mm. so what are the some of some of the key lessons uh, that that you would identify from the hundreds of years of the poor law that might be applicable to welfare policy today particularly in consideration mm. of the um uh, of, of the dizzying u-turns that seem to be <laughs> going on uh, in terms oh. of in terms of modern political policy on welfare well, I mean, as you can imagine, I think most historians of poverty and of welfare spend, or I certainly feel like I spend an increasing amount of time shouting at the television or shouting at the radio, usually things along the lines of, we had this conversation before. <laughs> um, I think one of the one of the kind of interesting avenues that could possibly be explored is... Um, is where is the whether positives can be gained in terms of welfare administration um, by an emphasis on giving localities or smaller kind of geographical areas more um, more kind of autonomy to or more more flexibility to respond to um, problems in their particular area. Um, the current situation, I think, as far as it appears to me, and this isn't doesn't isn't just you know applicable to welfare but to other things, is that um, local you know city or county councils are being allowed are, are having more responsibilities pushed towards them, but aren't being given um, the financial support to to kind of fully um, fully carry through on those responsibilities. Um, so I wonder if that's something to explore as to whether there's there's a way to better support local councils and city councils who, as as you know, we've already mentioned, might have a, a greater a chance at, at understanding their particular area. Um, maybe that would maybe that would help with kind of more streamlined and more compassionate welfare provision. 
Many thanks again to Nicola. And that's it for now. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back in July. <laughs>